If you'll notice, the handout for the text for today, I don't start with chapter 4, verse 1. I start with chapter 3, verse 27. There's a reason for that. Now, we have had the habit in the last few weeks at least to read the entire passage together. If we did that with these three pages, we would be here for quite a long time. So what I'm going to suggest is we start with chapter 3, verse 27, and read through chapter 4, verse 9, which is the first verse on the second page. So let's read that together, and then if we... uh, I feel we need to, we can come back together and read some other passages. But this gives at least a starting point for our lesson today. Starting in verse 27 of chapter 3. Then what comes, comes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. What then shall we say is gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. Now, the reason I started at the end of chapter 3 is that there are three key phrases in the end of chapter 3 that are repeated in chapter 4. When I was doing my study, I kept realizing that almost every teacher, every commentary, starts with chapter 4, verse 1. Well, it's a natural break until you realize there were no chapters. They didn't have that kind of break in the Greek text. It was just a flood of words. You have the word boasting is in verse 27 of chapter 3. It's also in chapter 4, verse 2. You have circumcision in chapter 3, verse 30, but also in chapter 4, verses 9 to 12. And then also is the law, which is found in chapter 3, verse 31, and then again uh, extrapolated in chapter 4, verses 13 to 17. There's method to Paul's madness. There's method to his presentation of the gospel. He is connecting pieces over and over and over again almost to the point of we got it already Paul and then he looks around the room but there's three people in the room with a blank stare so he does it again and again and again that's what a good teacher does you keep repeating it until finally they see the light bulbs in the room and what he's doing here he's talking and he's making these connections about boasting in the your works well no you shouldn't be doing that well but Abraham 
Well, no. And so you have this connection. So I'm not going to belabor that point, but I want to get into chapter 4 just realizing that there is connectivity to chapter 3. It isn't a separate thought. Now granted, the beginning of chapter 4 starts with the phrase, what then shall we say was gained by Abraham? Okay. Abraham is a big deal to the Jews. We, we know this, but I'm going to repeat it until the light bulbs all go on in the room. Okay. Abraham was a big deal. Genesis chapters 1 to 11 talk about creation, talk about the fall, talk about prehistory, things like Noah and the flood and all of that. That's 11 chapters. The next 14 chapters are the life of Abraham. And not starting with his birth, starting with his call as an old man. I think approximately 70, 75 years old is the, uh, if we do the math right. And you have his last years, he died at the age of 175, so it's a long time. But his hundred years of his life, he's, the scripture spends more time on him than on creation and Adam and Eve and Noah. He is the father of the people of Israel. He's also considered one of the fathers of Christianity because of that. And what other religion points to Abraham? Islam. Islam. He is the only one that all three religions equally revere. Paul makes a statement to, in his argument about righteousness and faith and picks the most famous character and the most commonly understood character in all of Judaism. I'm going to show you why this is unusual in a minute, but first I want to talk a little bit more about a thought that I had. Now, when I last taught, we, we talked about the idea of uh, if we wanted to be perfect, it's, you can't be perfect. And I use the illustration of a baseball player. We celebrate baseball players who fail 70% of the time. We put them on all-star teams. We pay them gazillion millions of dollars to strike out seven out of 10 times. That's just insane. But the point is, even if they always got a hit, even if they were perfect, it would only take one out for them to no longer be perfect. One time, someone happened to be standing in the right spot on the field to take their their batted ball away. That's one way to look at the concept of the impossibility of perfection. At the same time, I was thinking about this, saying what what is another way that people approach religion? People approach religion, or the idea of being faithful, as a layaway plan. You buy it, and you pay a little bit here, and 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 once you have enough, you get to take home the gift, or the the item. This is a transactional religion. And I would say, uh, one way to look at it is almost the majority of people look at their life and their life of faith as, if I do this for God, He will do that for me. I don't know if you read about the uh, uh, name it, claim it, health and wealth pastor who got robbed on on his television program this past week. Or, yeah, he got, he, it was live program, streaming, whatever it was, and a, ma- a masked gunman came up and robbed him of his jewelry worth $1 million. Wow. That is a very healthy, wealthy pastor. <laughs> um, now, whether it was staged or not is a question because they can't find the perpetrator. 
but um, of course he gets all of the news, gets a lot of play, but his message, this pastor's message, is very much transactional. You do this for God and you can wear jewelry like me. You can have the, all the wealth of the world. Kind of interesting how the scripture says we don't care about your treasures, you're not going to take them with you. Uh, but anyway, we look at this, we look at it as a pay-as-you-go, or you buy your Christianity at low or no interest. You can even try it before you buy it. See if it works for you. Goodness, you can buy your Christianity on Amazon. You can return it in six days for full credit. I mean, seriously, that's what we look at this concept and there is some manner to the idea of being good, having good works. But the Jews believe that Abraham worked his way to righteousness. You might go, well, no, that isn't what Scripture says. Wait a second. This is the prevailing view of Abraham according to the Jewish teachers and scholars of the past. The Mishnah, which is a commentary on the Old Testament. Or is it just the Torah? I think it's just the Torah. Yeah, just the Torah, just the first five books. The Mishnah's third division called the Kiddushin says this, we find that Abraham, our father, has performed the whole law Performed the whole law before it was given. For it is written in Genesis 26.5, because that Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. The book of Jubilees, which was around 100 B.C., quote, For Abraham was perfect in all his deeds with the Lord, and well-pleasing in righteousness all the days of his life. The prayer of Manassas reads, Thou therefore, O Lord, thou art the God of the righteous, hast not appointed repentance unto the righteous. But Abraham did not sin against you. 1 Maccabees 2.52 reads, Was not Abraham found faithful when tested, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness? They even change the translation of Habakkuk 2.4, which reads, The just shall live by faith, which we find quoted in Romans chapter 1, 16 and 17. It's actually quoting Habakkuk. They changed it to, The just shall live by faithfulness. That's a work. That's being good. One writer put it this way, Abraham's stature in Judaism, a hero who worshipped the one true God in the midst of idolatrous peoples. Abraham's legacy has been polished with a rich patina of miracle and legend. Indeed, in the nearly two millennia since his death, he has been elevated to a quasi-divine status. His grave in Hebron was honored as a holy place. He was believed to have obeyed perfectly God's commandments before they were given. And he was extolled as the embodiment of Psalm chapter 1. Blessed is the man who walks among the godly. Rabbis spoke of God having ordained the Torah before the foundation of the world for Abraham's sake. And along with Isaac and Jacob, he was regarded as the one who has not sinned against God. Pretty extraordinary. But not only does Paul appeal to the story of Abraham, he also appeals to David in chapter 4. He doesn't just go for one. He goes for both of the biggest names. Abraham was a patriarch, this is from uh, Robert Haldane, 
Abraham was a patriarch eminently holy, the head of the nation of Israel, the friend of God, which, by the way, is a quote from Isaiah, uh, which verse, I wrote it down, of course I don't remember it now. Isaiah 41.5, God speaks of Abraham as a friend of God, the only person referred to in that manner in the entire Bible. Isaiah said that. All right. Friend of God, father of all who believe, in whose seed all the nations of the world were to be blessed. David was a man according to God's own heart, the progenitor of the Messiah. His personal type, uh, his great personal type and a chosen and anointed king of Israel. If then Abraham had not been justified by his works, but the righteousness of God... Who would suppose that it could be obtained by any other means? So we look at this, we're kind of going, wow. Um, Paul's going to appeal to Abraham? But Abraham was sinless. No, he wasn't. Paul does something absolutely radical and almost dangerous. You think about what he's doing. He's taking the most revered figure in all of Judaism and holding it up as an example of faith being counted as righteousness, not works. Verse 1, what then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about but not before God. And by the way, one, one commentator make a very good point. If you ever find yourself proud of your faith, proud of your belief, proud that you're a Christian and they're not, that's the religion of Cain. Cain saw his faith as righteous. And God's going, no, it's all about you, not about me. And that was a rejected offering. Just an FYI. So, for if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. But the scripture says, in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, that's what he's quoting, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteous, righteousness. A couple things, just a little, this is more of a trivia note, but I thought it was fascinating. It doesn't say scriptures. It says, for what does the scripture say? How frequently, when we see Paul quoting, or other writers in the New Testament, they tell, well, the scriptures say, meaning the whole of the Old Testament. Now, he's pulling one verse out specifically. Because we teach the scriptures chronologically, we actually studied this verse before. In Galatians. He quoted it in Galatians 3.6, this same Genesis passage, 20 years ago, chronologically. And maybe that's how long we've been teaching this, too. But anyway, um, Paul is, this isn't the first time he's brought this up. In that particular case, he was making a larger case for Gentiles. That Gentiles uh, uh, should be welcomed as well. But he did make that quote. It's also quoted in another passage, which I'll get to in a minute. Um, so three times in the New Testament, Genesis 15, 6 is quoted. Note some things about it. It says, Abraham believed, and it was counted as righteousness. Let's see. We have one of those words here, believed. It's also the same word, faith. We also have the word righteous. Remember our list of all these important words. We're also going to add in the word counted. Uh, 
Oh, let's see where I'm going to put that. That's, oh, we're going to have to erase propitiation. Just memorize the chart. Um, take a picture of it. We also have the word counted. Now, this particular word, I want to take a little side excursion into this word. It is the Greek word lo gizomai. Now, uh, before I get there, back up a little bit. In Romans chapter 4, believe or faith, or the Greek word pistis, is used 17 times. The word logizomai, or counted, we don't like the music competition here, <laughs> is used 11 times. And the word di K-A-I-O-S, dikaios, or righteousness, is also used 11 times in chapter 4. Now, if that doesn't tell you how important these words are, or the, until we have those defined, you're not going to understand this passage. So you go through, you type, you count the number of times you see the word believe or faith. It's going to be 17 times in this chapter. You go and look for the word counted, depending on your translation, unfortunately. Uh, you'll find legizomize 11 times and righteousness 11 times. Legizomize, counted. In the King James Bible, it is translated six times in chapter 4 as Imputed. You've heard of the phrase imputation or imputed righteousness? Have you heard that before? What does it mean? It's one of those propitiation words. It's one of those $30 words that's now worth $75 because of inflation. So, imputed is a key concept theologically. Now before I get to it, I'm going to tell a quick anecdote that I saw in a, um, it was a video of R.C. Sproul and John MacArthur having a conversation. Um, some conference, there was kind of a Q&A, kind of going back and forth, and they were discussing the word evangelical and the challenge of the word evangelical having been redefined by society. If you hear the word evangelical now in the general world, it is considered a political term. That means you're a far-right Christian, or you're on the far-right politically. The problem is evangelicalism was not a political word, it was a theological word had everything to do with an understanding of orthodoxy and an, and an understanding of Christianity. Nothing to do with politics. It's just switched. So MacArthur and Sproul are kind of, oh, it's frustrating. And then I don't remember which one said to the other, so what do we call ourselves then? If we can't call ourselves evangelical Christian, what do we call ourselves? And I think it was Sproul said, we need to call ourselves imputationists. <laughs> and Mark MacArthur going, this is perfect, but no one will know what that means. <laughs> For theologians, of course. And if you go into the text, it isn't, you know, when you start looking at your text on your first page, you'll see the word counted in verse 3 in verse 4, in verse 5, and in verse 6. You see that? It's the same word, logizomai. But even in the 
King James Bible, it isn't translated as imputed until verse 6. It has the word counted, the first three instances, and then it changes to the idea of imputed. Now, imputed technically does mean counted or credited. To use a transactional term, which I just said we shouldn't be doing, but we're not talking about religion in general, we're talking about theologically. The idea of taking something and applying it to your account, credited to your account. So if you have a credit card bill and someone gives you $10,000, you can impute that to your credit card bill. You can credit the amount, which still means you owe another $15,000 because you got overextended on your credit card. Or it wipes it out. It is credited to you. This is why the concept of Jesus paying it all, that grand hymn, Jesus paid it all, which is taken from the scriptural idea that when Jesus died on the cross, his death, his blood, was Im that was imputed, was credited to us to pay all of our sins, to wipe them out for all time. Does that make sense? But Paul is using this 11 times in this chapter. That's significant. And he's tying it to faith. One created the other, created righteousness, or being declared right before God, or justified before God. So, <clears throat> let's ask this question. It said, Abraham believed God, and it, what's the it? His, what? His faith? It, the belief, or the pistis, was counted or imputed to him as righteousness. What faith? You look back at Abraham, just don't, I, I listened to a couple teachers, they spent the first 30 minutes of their presentation doing the entire history of Abraham. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to assume that you're going to dredge up your background and memory of the story of Abraham. But what acts or what was the faith that Abraham presented that God then took as enough to count as righteousness. What did he do? What was his faith? He sacrificed his son. He, really he believed yes. and, and was willing, and that's a big, big deal. Big deal. But even at the very beginning. But that was at the end. What did he do in the beginning? Exactly. He was called somewhere in Iraq. He was called to move and he went, not knowing where he was going. You know, I mean, if God tells you, um, hey Steve, I want you to uproot your family, sell everything, and you're going to move, but I'm not going to tell you where. I'm not going to tell you whether it's east or west, north or south. And I'm going to go, uh, no. I have to know where I'm going. Isn't that our normal reaction? What if your employer says, we really like what you're doing. We want to promote you, but we're not sure which of our 79 offices in 79 countries, we're going to send you to be in charge. And you're going to go, I may not accept your promotion then until you tell me, if I'm going to Sri Lanka, I ain't going. 
If I'm going to, you know, the capital of Des Moines, is there a capital of Des Moines? <laughs> if I'm going to Des Moines, <laughs> wow, that was weird. Anyway, um, oh, I, I might consider it if it's a promotion. What are the school systems like? I mean, we start at all these other questions, but no, God called Abram and he went. He was told he'd be the father of all of nations. Now here's an interesting thought. That massive promise to Abram, and then later Abraham, that he would be the father of many nations. Did he ever see the results? No. He died before Israel was born. Jacob, who was later renamed Israel. He died before this father of nations happened, but he believed it. He believed in the promise of God. That's an extraordinary thing. Now granted, at first, he didn't believe when he was told that his wife Sarah would become pregnant. And in fact, he laughed. Hmm? Sarah, laughed. Sarah laughed. Well, they probably both chuckled. <laughs> and there was this, okay, it's going to happen. And it did. But he had also wavered 14 years earlier, and he had a child with Hagar. Do I have that right? Yeah. Hagar. Ishmael. And then came the sacrifice. So he had multiple places and multiple times in his life where this faith of his was extraordinary. But what makes it even more amazing is this was all before the law of Moses was put into place. There was no law. He did, that's why the Jews, the rabbis were saying that he believed the law before it was written. And if we want to count chronology, the law of Moses wasn't given for 430 years. Not just a few weeks. It was four and a half centuries later that the law was presented to Moses. That is faith. That is belief in the promises of God. And God made a covenant with Abraham that he would make him the father of many nations. Now, an author named Ash, I think it's Christopher Ash, he, said, he writes this, he says, When the verse says that Abraham's faith was counted to him for righteousness, this does not mean that Abraham and God did a swap. That Abraham generously offered God his faith, and in return for his faith, God gave Abraham righteousness. That would turn faith into a human work. No, it means that faith is the channel by which the undeserved righteousness of God is credited, is imputed to a sinner. See the difference? We have to be careful with that because you can fall into the transactional conversation very quickly if you're not careful to see that it's not the faith. This is where we have the, you know, Arminian and Calvinist, you know, when how you get saved debates ad infinitum. But another writer named Plummer wrote this. He said, when men succeed in excluding imputation from the terms of theology, it will not be long until they are found disusing and even opposing the word righteousness. The two must stand or fall together. And what will be the preaching of the what will the 
preaching of the gospel be when no righteousness remains to be offered? We have to be careful. Theology matters. That's another way of putting it. So, we keep going. Verse 4, Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. It's an obligation. If I, uh, I have a contract with your, you have a contract with your employer, you do a certain amount of work, and he pays you the wage that you had agreed upon. He's not giving it to you. It's not a gift. You had to earn it. If you don't do the work, he's not going to pay you. That's transactional. Verse 5, but to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. And that's what he's trying to say, is that the gift of God is that imputed righteousness. He gives it to you. You don't have to do anything to get it. Your faith is the channel by which you, it is imputed, but it is not a work. But there's this phrase here. Believes in him who justifies the ungodly. Justifies the ungodly. We, we'll, we read right over this. And I have multiple times. I've studied this passage. I've read it. It never stopped me in my tracks until I was studying it this week. Wait a second. We're taking, we understand what the theology of Christianity is. We understand that God justifies those who are undeserving. But the audience that Paul is writing to, they have in their minds, Exodus 23, 7, that God says, I will not acquit the wicked. I will not. And in Proverbs 17.5, it's written, He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. Wait. You're telling me that God is going to justify the wicked? This is what he's writing. Believe in him who justifies the ungodly or the wicked. Same word. That's mind-boggling to the audience. They're going, but, 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 wait a minute. Are you telling me a good person who lives a clean life and does their best, they're a community leader, leader they abide by the golden rule, they do everything right, they will not be justified? Oh. Clean living doesn't do it. You didn't bat a thousand. Instead, the hopeless, the helpless, the ungodly are the ones who are justified. Oh wait, that's me. <clears throat> I don't deserve it. I didn't earn it. I didn't do all the right things. It's not an inner transformation of morality. Justification. Justification is not an inner transformation of morality, but a declaration of legal status to be declared righteous or counted as righteous before God. Martin Luther said, God does not accept a person on account of his works, but the works on account of the person. Say that again. God does not accept a person on account of his works, but the works on account of, a per of the person, and the person before the works. I'll say it one more time. God does not accept a person on account of his works. Fairly straightforward. But the works on account of the person. He would gladly accept those wonderful behavior, the works of what they do, but he will accept the person before he accepts the works. So I'm going to throw a 
wrench into this entire conversation just because I can. Turn in your Bibles to James chapter 2. Yes, I went there, Tom. <laughs> James chapter 2, verse 21. And read with me. Because this is the third place where Genesis 15, 6 is quoted. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. The scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteous, righteousness and was called a friend of God. You can see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Talk amongst yourselves. <laughs> Didn't I just contradict everything I just was teaching? Yes, you did. I did. And so did the Bible. Or did it? Luther thought so. Hmm? Luther thought so. Luther thought so. He threw the book of James out of his canon because of these kinds of phraseologies. So, imagine you're in a situation outside of this classroom and you're talking about faith alone, the idea of having faith alone, count of Abraham is righteous, and then someone quotes James at you. How do you answer? You have to go and read verse 18. Because he's linking the two. He is. And that's the key. You can't just pull one verse out. Because if you look at verses 17 and 18, 17 says, also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And someone will say, you have faith and I have works, and show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. It's that second half of the paragraph that throws it off. Back when we taught this, because uh, we were exploring Galatians and James back to back when we, when we went through this as a class. Because you have Galatians presenting the idea of justification by faith alone very strongly. And then you have James over here, and then you even have the, con the uh, conflict between Peter and Paul and James in the Council of Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15, I think. Over this, over the Judaism, the idea of works and circumcision and all of those kinds of things. So, you have to look at, and I'll, I'll flip to it because I can do it quicker. To Galatians chapter 2 verse 16 says, We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. And then later in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 10, Paul writes, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. James is not contradicting. He's focusing on the idea is that if there are no works, your faith is useless. So he was trying to say, Abraham's works were a result of his faith, not the righteousness granted because he obeyed. Not that. Then, you want to get even deeper? You go to Hebrews chapter 11. The Hall of Fame list. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8. By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going, which is what we talked about earlier. 
By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, a foreign land, and live in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. He was looking forward to a city that has foundations, whose designer was and builder was God. Verse 17, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able to even raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Abraham's faith was expressed by his works. So now that we've solved that entire problem and you've memorized it, uh, it is still, I come back to this comment, for Paul writing to the church in Rome, many of them probably very good Jews, very solid believers in Yahweh. And he comes in, he said, those of you who are teaching that you need to do something to get the faith, you're wrong. And I'm going to use the father of the faith as my example. And on top of that, God justifies the wicked. Well, no, he can't do that. He could, we're, we're supposed to live the good life. That's, he's trying to understand it in a different way. Verse 6, just as David also speaks of the blessing to the one who, whom God imputed or counted righteousness apart from works, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not impute or count his sin. This is Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2. Notice he doesn't say, Blessed are those who do not sin. He said, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. To impute sin, this is Charles Hodge, to impute sin is to lay sin to the charge of anyone and treat him accordingly. To impute righteousness is to set righteousness into one's account and treat him accordingly. David broke three of the Ten Commandments in the incident with Bathsheba. He coveted, he committed adultery, and he committed murder. That means he's an all-star. He got three out of ten hits. Sorry. I just thought of that. <laughs> he's an he's a MVP. He's an MVP. I mean, oh man. That, and yet you look at Psalm 32. We, he's quoting the first two verses here. Well, I'm going to keep reading. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groanings all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. David's writing this in the Psalms, which is like putting it on Facebook. He put it out there for all to see. He didn't hide it. He was not proud of his sin, but he confessed it openly and knew he was wrong and did and worked his faith for the rest of his life. And that is an extraordinary Testimony. Verse 9, is this blessing then only for the circumcised? 
or also for the uncircumcised. For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. Well, how was it then counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? If not after, it was not after, but before. And when you go into the text, you will see that Ishmael was born when Abraham was 84, Genesis 16, 13 or 14 years later, depending on how you do the math, in Genesis 17, Abraham was circumcised 14 years later. It was counted to him as righteousness before the seal, the sign, was placed on him. Verse 11, he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had set before he was circumcised. Unpack that simply. It's so that we can be included. Unfortunately, there's an earworm song that's in, been in my head all week, and I want to give it to you as a gift. <laughs> father Abraham had many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham, and I am one of them, and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. Da -da 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 -da. And you go back in, and then you say, right foot, right, right. Anyway, you got it. it's a kid's song, and I have been singing it in my head over and over and over again. But Father Abraham was the father of many nations. I am one of them. And so are you. That's extraordinary to think. 2,000, 3,000 millennium passed. And we're sitting here looking at this kind of going, huh. Verse 13. The promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world did not come through the law. This was given before the law, 400 years before the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs. Faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings... Well, get to my pages, the ones that Carl saved... Where am I? I'm on page five. There we go. For me, it's page five. <clears throat> For the law brings wrath, but the, where there is no law, there is no transgression. This is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, <clears throat> not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, as it is written, I've made you the father of many nations in the presence of God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into his existence the things that do not exist. I am going to have a handout here. <coughs> that I want you to look at with me. It compares Romans chapter 1 and Romans chapter 4 in such a unique way. I'll wait till it gets around. Now you want it. And to give a, pro a proper credit this chart was created by Craig Keener, K-E-E-N-E-R, in his exegetical study on Romans. But look at this. I've never seen this comparison before. You look at Romans chapter 1, verses 20 to 27, and Romans chapter 4, 1 to 17, and see how Abraham counters 
the death culture that we live in. Humanity failed to recognize its creator. Romans chapter 1, verse 20 and 25. But Abraham trusted the creator. Romans 1.20, humanity ignored God's power, his dunamis, dynamite, the destructive power of God, the wrath of God. Abraham trusted God's power, 4.21, and that power there is the word dunatos, which means to grow strong. There's a difference between destructive power and positive power. Humanity did not give God glory, 121, but Abraham gave God glory, 420. Humanity dishonored their bodies, 124. Abraham found strength in his body in 419, even though he was a century old. Humanity used their bodies in non-productive same-sex relations, chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, but Abraham and Sarah, as centenarians, if that you would call them, conceived a child, miraculously being fruitful and multiplying. Wow. When I saw this, I was talking to Lisa about this last night, and I was saying, I've never seen that comparison between chapter 1 and chapter 4. But think of the intentionality of Paul in doing that in such a way through the power of the Holy Spirit he was presenting his arguments and then you kind of go wait he's making and without referring to it it's almost as if he's saying here's the problem oh yeah here's the solution everybody it's what Abraham did by faith Isn't that extraordinary I, I absolutely love this for those of you who are watching online, you're going to have to go to theinneraltar.com and download it later. Ha! All right. Uh, but I will put it up there for you. One more thing. And I just want to talk with the group here about this a little bit. Let's flip over to verse 20. And this is a bothersome verse for some. It reads, No unbelief made Abraham waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Oh, wait. Yes, he did. He wavered. He doubted that Sarah could get pregnant. Goodness, he didn't have enough patience 14 years earlier and had a child with his concubine. So what does this mean? To me, it's very specific about his sacrifice of Isaac, okay. as opposed to the earlier promise. Okay. He never wavered when he was told to take his son to be sacrificed in that incident. In that incident. He was steadfast. So let me argue and say, then how can, but you should be able to apply that statement then to previous where he did waver. Why? Why, Why? not take it as it stands? And because it isn't specific. Because well, the previous verse is talking about the barrenness of Sarah's womb. Right. Not about Isaac. So you could make the argument that it isn't talking about the sacrifice. Sign of the Abraham covenant. Hmm? Sign of the covenant. Talking about the covenant? Okay. I'm, I'm playing devil's advocate here on purpose. Because scripture is now, again, seemingly contradicting itself, saying that, oh, he's this great faithful man, and he never wavered. Well, yeah, he did. He tells us he did. Just like the example of David. Okay. Okay. We are still human. We are always going to sin. Okay. There's, there's no hope. Okay, here's another way of looking at it. Isaac, or I'm sorry, Abraham lived another 
130 years after Isaac was born? Oh, not 100, sorry. 100, approximately another 60 years after Isaac was born. Does that mean he was perfect during those 60 years? We don't have really have much specific. Okay, wavering okay. then, okay, <laughs> as a form of disobedience. How would you answer that? How would you convince me? I'm the bad guy in the room, convince me. Convince me that the Bible isn't being inconsistent. Go ahead. Plus, you'll notice how the verse is phrased, at least in English. He grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. He wavered, but then, as he gave glory to God, his faith grew strong and was a counter to his own doubts. Think about what Pastor Ron was preaching on the day about the idea of doubt and saying if you have it let's talk about this but don't give up on God he didn't say that in that way but there's this idea that you can never doubt you can never waver and if you do you've lost your faith that's not true there are definite times in each one of our lives where circumstances or even I find myself, even as I'm teaching or preparing, that I overthink it. And I start turning inward to my own devices, into my own answers, to my own philosophy. And I have to stop myself, as you said earlier, hey, it's not about you, Steve. It's about God. And once that happens, the faith waves begin to fill back up and the doubt goes away. And an assurance of it comes, but it comes through. As Abram, that Abraham, it's a journey. We're going to go uphill, we're going to go downhill. We're going to be thirsty, we're going to be rainy. Uh, it's just life's journey that we have to experience here on Earth by his dominion to do that. We're going to, uh, as, as we apply his truth, as we fail, as we correct ourselves, as we have relationships until we die and go to heaven, uh, this life is not easy. Yeah. Look at all these words. Righteousness, justification, glory of God, faith, grace, redemption, sin, propitiation, and now imputation. All of this is wrapped up in this conversation here when we have this idea of what God has done for us, and he's using the example of Abraham. He did this, Abraham didn't know that he was going to be made righteous. He just believed. He didn't have an Old Testament to read. He didn't have a New Testament to read. He didn't have some preacher preaching to him uh, on Spotify. God spoke and he said, I believe, wherever you want me to go. That is such an extraordinary testimony, I think, to all of us. Almost making us without excuse, because we all have so many other opportunities to hear these words. Abraham didn't have any of that. He had a thought. Well, you know, it just keeps coming back over and over in my mind that even faith is not something that we generate. So you're saying you're a better faith person than I am because because of because ah, as if it, it has a quantity. Yeah, and then, <laughs> I mean, in our sinfulness, we take everything that is a gift from God 
and turn it into some source of pride. Yep. Well, how many people have will say, I'm sick because I don't have enough faith? You hear this preached and taught in some churches saying, you are sick because you don't believe hard enough. You didn't pray right. And, going, and it's not, you think, God isn't a vending machine. Put in enough prayer in a certain way and the candy bar comes out. No, he's asking you to be faithful. Have you read Job? Yeah, exactly. Have you read Job? <laughs> exactly. His faith was imputed to him as righteousness. But the words it was imputed to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. As Dr. Martin would have said, that'll preach. The imputation of at Abraham's faith toward righteousness is not for his sake alone, but for ours. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespass and raised for our justification. That is the close the door, end of conversation in an argument that he's using Abraham as this example, 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 going back and forth, repeating himself, and then he actually turns it to the very end and saying, and it's yours too. You and Abraham experience justification in the same way. Faith in God's promise apart from works. It's no different. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for our time here and the opportunity to wrestle and dig and discuss this extremely challenging passage only for its complexity and yet in its simplicity. The bottom line is you're trying to tell us, look, I'll treat you the same way. All I'm asking you is believe Believe in my promises. Believe in me. That's all I ask. In Jesus' name, amen.